I've asked the Lord many, many times to make me sensitive to when he's speaking and to, uh, to alert me. Uh, it is crucial that we have the kind of relationship to God that when he speaks, we know it's God and we know what he's saying and we make the major adjustments in our life to him. I was reading in Brian Edwards' book, uh, Revival, A People Saturated with God, and uh, I came across uh, a description from a missionary in 1907 in North Korea of that enormous moment when the Spirit of God fell on that place. And uh, I noticed as I was reading it, there was a deep, deep movement of God in my own heart. I had not had that before. And I didn't quite understand what he was saying or what he was doing, but I could not get away from the scenes described in that book of what it is like to suddenly encounter a holy God. We have no reference point to something of that magnitude. But I kept it in my heart, and last November, my wife and I were in Taiwan and then Korea. And there again was a huge movement of God in my own heart. And uh, as I approached Korea, I knew that there more than 500 pastors would be gathering from all different denominations and from all over South Korea and some of their staff. Uh, and on a Tuesday night, suddenly, what I'd read in that book began to happen. Suddenly there was a profound encounter with God. I was not finished with the message and I had not given an invitation. But suddenly the entire place broke out into wailing. It's the only way I know how to describe it. Every person in that room began to wail before the Lord. And looking back, the encounter was so deep in the, par in, the, in the lives of some that all they could do was just shout. Others, others fell out on the ground and began to pound the floor. Others pounded the table, and they wept. And I looked at my interpreter, and he was on his face beside me. And uh, I'd never been in a moment quite like that. So I turned and went back to the chair behind me and began to kneel and pray and there was a touch on my shoulder and uh, a man in broken English said, I'm a pastor and his eyes were swollen with tears. He said, uh, would you pray for me? Is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for me? Could you pray for me? Now, I don't know what you do I didn't give him any comfort. I simply asked God to help me to know how to pray. And I could tell you the moment that God set him free. Suddenly, he hugged me, and he cried, and he said, I'm free, I'm free. And he said, thank you. And he turned and walked away, and I went back to praying, and there was another touch on my shoulder, and it was another pastor. 
And I looked, and there was a whole line of doctors. And it terrified me. And I grabbed the interpreter and went to the um, microphone. I said, Pope, let me say a word to you. When you're in the presence of Almighty God, don't ever, ever leave that presence until God's through with you. Do not seek a blessing from a man when you're face to face with holy God. And I said, lest, lest I interrupt what God intends to do in this place, my wife and I are going to our room and we're going to pray for you. We're going to pray for you through the night. And I said, do not leave the presence of God until he has completed his work in your heart. The next morning, folk began to give a testimony. A stately pastor stood and said, you know that I am the pastor of one of the largest Presbyterian churches in South Korea. Said, I came with a very successful ministry. I came with great acclamation from people. And I didn't know all that would happen, but I want you to know, he said, that last night God confronted me. And he said, you are full of sin. You have lost the shepherd's heart. You're no longer ministering to my people or caring for them. And the word I have for my people, I can't get to them because of you. And if you do not repent, your ministry's over. And this brother just cried his heart out. He said the Lord wouldn't let him loose all through the night and into the early hours of the morning and into the late hours of the morning. And he said, finally, God gave me peace. And he said, I want you to pray for me because I'm going back to my people. And the work that God did in me to cleanse me is what I want to see happen in the people that God has entrusted to me. And God has once again let me be a shepherd to his people. Others stood. And it was an awesome moment. And there were a number there who came and said, South Korea has not seen a touch of God like this in 30 years. But I had talked to them and asked them a question. I said, do you believe that God is willing that any North Koreans perish? And the all of one accord said, no, he wants them to be saved. And I said, are you willing for God to begin to prepare you for what he might be about to do to open the doors to North Korea? I'd said that earlier. Well, I'd said that with fear and trembling. Because I just come from Taiwan and not of that magnitude, but something very similar. I had not given an invitation. I had not finished the message. And pastors began to come with brokenness at the altar and on the front row. And I, when I thought it was appropriate, went down to talk to one who looked to be in his early 30s. And through swollen eyes, he looked at me and I said, sir, did God speak to you? He said, yes, sir. I said, what did God tell you? He said, God commanded me to go and preach the gospel to China. And I looked at him and 
said, you know, sir, that may cost you your life. He looked back at me, and I'll never forget the look in his eyes. He looked straight through me, and he said, sir, that's the issue. I just settled with God a few minutes ago. <laughs> and then I trembled because I realized that for me to be obedient to God may cost others their life. And I've been watching and covenanting to pray. And you see, it's so critically important that spiritual leaders know the tremors of the activity of God. And so this past week, I listened as North and South Korea are communicating. It's not a political decision. It's a spiritual decision. And I watched to see how God was touching the pastors. To, because when God's about to do something here, he starts it over here. And then he works his way to this moment so that everything is in place when God does a mighty work. And I'll illustrate that a little further. But we're standing in the middle, I believe, of a spiritual crossroads. And the ones I believe that are not aware of it are the evangelical people of God in America. I don't think we're even close to understanding what God's up to. And I'll illustrate that in a moment. My theme with you for these moments is a call to corporate revival. And I want to use a moment when this happened uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 7. And uh, I'm a long ways from uh, the incarnation of this message in my own life. One thing about the Lord Jesus, he was the incarnation of everything he preached. What he taught and how he spoke, he was the message. And he intends that there should never be a message that ever comes from any of our hearts or our mouths that are not that is not incarnated in our life. Because if you say one thing and live another, what does God call that? Hypocrisy. And he hates hypocrisy. But too often as evangelicals, we believe that anything goes as long as it's scriptural. We forget that the the proclaimer needs to be the incarnation of the message he preaches. Don't preach on forgiveness if you do not have forgiveness in your heart. And if you still have things in your life. Well, I want to take you through a moment. I'll give you a bit of the background once we've read the passage. But I want you to catch the progression. But I want you to see how critically important in corporate Revival and corporate repentance. The solitary person who leads that. What kind of a person do they need to be? Because when God's people cry out, we have sinned against God. Just not anybody can guide the people of God who recognize they're under conviction of sin. To know what to do next. But Samuel did. And there's a reason why he did, and we'll catch that. I'm going to start 
in the verses uh, that uh, preceded. In verse 19 of the 6th chapter. Then God struck the men of Beth Shemesh. Because they looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Let me just introduce you to a truth that we will present to you. We will never see a mighty revival until we understand the ways of God. You need to understand that when someone sins against God, it is serious with God. And he may take the life of 57,000 people simply because they looked into the ark. The evangelical community does not believe that we serve the God that we see revealed in the scriptures. We feel we can live any way we want and God will just forgive us regardless of what we've done. It's not the God I see in the Bible. Matter of fact, we're going to see in a moment when God confronted Eli with the way he was treating his sons. He was honoring his sons more than he was God and suddenly, in his old age, Eli realized that his sons were wicked. And so he came to them and he began to try and instruct them and he said, a man may sin against another man and God can judge him. But if a man sin against God, there is no one who can intercede for him. And when he finished giving that instruction, the scripture says, and his sons paid no attention, paid no attention to Eli, and then comes, one of these days I'm going to ask you what it means, Brother Roberts is one of God's premier Bible students. It says they paid no attention to Eli because God had determined to kill his sons. In other words, they couldn't have repented if they'd wanted to. They'd passed the line. And they could not repent like Esau. He sought repentance with tears, but he couldn't find it. We need to understand the ways of God. And I hear people say, well, that's Old Testament. And I say, no, that's not Old Testament. That's holy God. And what happened in Korea was they met the holiness of God. And they couldn't stand. They had to, they were on their face. They were on the tables. They were crying. They were shouting. They couldn't get away from him. I think it was Edwin Orr who wrote a little, gave a message entitled, Revival is like Judgment Day. That's true. When you cry out to God for revival, you need to be ready for the absolute judgment of God on your sin. But we don't believe that God will judge our sin because we have, and I've heard it and I want to stand up and say something whenever I hear it. It doesn't matter what you've done, God will forgive you anyway. You are adulterating the word of God and causing the people of God to sin and feel that they can do anything they want and with just a word to God, he'll forgive them without any repentance whatsoever 
and without even a slightest understanding of what God means by repenting. We set our own standard for repentance, do it, and say God forgave me because I asked him to. Where in the world did you ever get that? Now, these people had sinned against God. Now, it doesn't matter whether you think it is sin or not. If God thinks it's sin, you're going to experience the consequences. Looking into the ark, what's wrong with that? Well, let God show you. 57,000 people of God died. Do you think that would leave an impression that it was probably sin? But there's another thing you're going to see about God and the ways of God as we continue to read. Because this was a serious moment with the people of God. And it says, And the men of Bathsheba said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent the messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Shirim, saying, the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. Now listen to this next verse. So it was that the ark remained in Kir. Kiriath-Jerim, a long time. It was there 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You're just seeing one of the ways of God. God does not respond because we pray. God responds out of his sovereign ways. And How long would it have taken God to return the ark to the people of God? He could have done it in a day. Why did God let the ark be out of the people of God for 20 long years? And why did he let the people of God lament after God for 20 years with nothing happening? Well, ask him. They had lost the sense of the presence of God. They had somehow felt that they owned God, and if they prayed, God was obligated to respond. Will God let us pray for 20 years for revival and not bring it? Yes. But when his people become the people he can give revival to, then he will do it. But we automatically assume the basic condition for God acting is our prayer. It is not. You can't receive the the, the incredible empowering of God without prayer, but that's not the only condition of it. And so into the middle of this situation comes Samuel. And I want to read through the rest of this because, as you remember, the children of Israel, there was no open vision. Eli Didn't have any word from God. The people did not have any word from God. They were disoriented to God. And the sin of Eli and his sons had disoriented all the people of God 
to a relationship to God. And even the elders didn't know what to do, and they sinned, not even knowing they were sinning. Because when the Philistines defeated the children of Israel, the elders said, what in the world has God done? And I think God would say, I'm glad you asked, but I don't think you really want the answer. It is your sin. But the elders of the people of God were so disoriented to God, and they were the people of God. They had the law of God. They had the testimonies and statutes of God. It's not that they didn't know they were a covenant people. They had moved from relationship to religion. And now when God spoke, they didn't recognize his voice. And when God acted, they never realized it was God. And when they, they asked the right question, but they didn't expect the right answer. Why has God let the ark, why has he let the people of God be defeated? And why has he let these things come upon us? They said, why don't we just get the ark? And take the ark into battle. And uh, that will make us secure. Evangelicals have their little arks they take into the battle as well. And it all makes sense to us. Why he'll hear the evangelicals. No sir. If sin runs rampant in the church you can count on it. There will be silence from God. And he will let a captivity of our most sacred things come into play. And judgment fell. But the elders were the ones who said, let's take the ark and that'll keep us. And God let them capture the ark. And that put them even in greater distress. And then he left the ark 20 years to somehow cause somebody to say there's something wrong. And I can let you in on a burden of my heart. From the time I was a little boy, I've been praying for revival in Canada. Many of you know that my uncle was in the great Shantung revival and worked with Jonathan Goforth in North China and Manchuria. So my whole life has been oriented into revival. And I've been praying for a long time. But as I've been going through these passages... The Spirit of God has said, Henry, why don't you ask me why you prayed so long and you've not seen the mighty work of God? Why don't you ask me? And I tremble when I ask him. Then comes Samuel. And I want you to hear Samuel's simple, clear answer. And what happened to the children of Israel. And what happened again to Samuel. And then what God did. Not in answer to the cry of the Israelites. But in answer to the cry of Samuel. Let's read it. It's an incredible story. Then, then after 20 years. And they had been lamenting after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke. Now here's the corporate nature of this. And you need to understand all the individual renewal and awakening is never a substitute for corporate revival. 
and corporate repentance. We are a covenant people. We are a corporate people. We're a people who belong to God and one another, and God does not just play favorites with individuals to bring great renewal and not touch the people of God. All the way through the Bible, including Pentecost. Pentecost did not come just on individuals. It came on the church. The local congregation gathered together with one heart and one soul. That's always the way God does it. And so, notice the corporate. He spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign, the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and prepare your heart for the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and they served the Lord only. And Samuel said, here's the corporate, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And it was obvious with them. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged them, the children of Israel, at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel and when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Do you know God's people are still afraid of the Philistines? I mean, when they're in a corporate gathering and we're saying all kinds of things against the enemy, we feel pretty secure until the Philistines hear about our gathering and start to gather themselves against us and God's people start to tremble and say, oh my goodness, they're gathering against us. We need to identify who in the world the Philistines are. And they will gather when they see the people of God gathering together. And it is a good thing, it is a good thing when you see the Philistines gathering, that you corporately say, we have sinned, not Washington has sinned, Hollywood has sinned, the lesbians have sinned, God's people must cry out together, we have sinned against God. And let the holy presence of God tell you what it is that you have done that is so offensive to God. Let God stay there until God tells you. Don't just say God wants us to confess that we have sinned, but we really don't know what in the world we've done. But it's, uh, it's, uh, it's the evangelical thing to do, to come and pray Lord, we've sinned against you. And God says, now start to name them. Well, Lord, I don't know any sin that I've committed. Well, he said, then stay here until I tell you what you've done. 
And when I'm through with you, you'll know that you have sinned, and then you'll make the connection between the condition of your land and the sin of the people of God. As goes the people of God in their relationship to God, so goes the nation. Could I just interject briefly that 9-11, I'm convinced, was God's speaking to the people of God and saying to the people of God, you have sinned and I am beginning to withdraw my hedge of protection upon your land. We haven't seen the end of that one. But he began to do it. But my conviction is the only people in America who have never got that message are God's people. You look at their bulletins this next Sunday and compare it with the first Sunday in September and there's not a difference one. Everybody else in America has changed radically and the world is changing except the people of God. Because we do not believe the problem has to do with us. And yet sin runs rampant in the life of the people of God. Churches are full of it. Divorce running out our ears. Worse than the nation around us. Broken relationships that are an abomination to God. Deceit. Pastoral leadership having affairs. ...with the church. Our churches are full of sin. And then we see something happen in America and we say like the Israelites, well, why did God let this happen to us? And God says, you're asking the right question, but you're not staying in my presence till I tell you the answer. It is you who have sinned. So Samuel stood up after 20 years of the people of God lamenting after God and said, if you will return to God, not to activity, but to a relationship. And if you will respond to him with all of your heart and serve him, then he'll take care of the Philistines. Now immediately the Philistines heard and came against them and they whined because they had not yet understood the relationship with God. Then it says, so the children of Israel said, to Samuel. Now this is one that I have been trembling before the Lord. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel immediately began to offer sin offerings to the Lord for himself. He took a suckling lamb, offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Do you notice the sequence? Many of us want to cry out to God for revival, but we don't want to do the prerequisite. We don't want to offer sin offerings to God on our behalf before we ever utter a word to God in prayer. You've got to have a clean heart and a clean life. You and I know very carefully the passage of Scripture. The effectual, fervent prayer of what? A righteous person. Now that's what Samuel. Was there anything at stake? 
Yeah, the survival of the people of God was at stake. And now it came down to one person. And thank God that the people of God had a track record having watched Samuel. Let me ask you, do you have enough of a track record before the people of God that if a serious crisis came, you'd be the first person they'd call on? Because they know your relationship to God is secure. And they come to you, not to have a meeting, but to cry out to God so that we can survive. And Samuel then, out of an intimacy with God, he made an offering, a burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And aren't you glad for those three words? The Lord answered him. The whole survival of the people of God rested on that prayer. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord, who had already answered, thundered. The Lord has a thousand ways to take care of the enemy. You don't have to instruct him. He knows exactly what's going to discomfort the enemy. But he's got to have someone who prayed significantly so that when the enemy comes, he does discomfort them. And it says... The Philistines drew near at battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. The men of Israel went out of Mizpah, pursued the Philistines, drove them back as below Bethkar. And I bet some of them were saying, look what we did. There'll never come a time when there's ever a victory that you can say, look what we did. It'll be preceded by a 20-year cry unto God. We don't know why you're not hearing. Then God brings, as we had heard earlier, bring someone. And they know the track record of a man of God. Would you pray for us that the Philistines will not destroy us? And he offered an offering and then he prayed and God heard him and God immediately, immediately knew how to deal with the enemy. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? When you see something like this, we're always trying to figure out what to do with the enemy. God knows how to take care of the enemy. His problem is he can't get you in the condition where he'll do it. It wouldn't take God a week to discomfort all the enemies of the people of God in America. One blow and he can do it. But he's got to have his people in a relationship to him so that when he does it, all the glory will go to God. And we've got to have some leaders who understand when the people of God cry out, we have sinned, they know what to do next. We've got to have somebody who knows how to lead the people of God in corporate repentance. And to do it in a way that is credible to God and to men. But you notice it doesn't end there. I just want to add this one word. After the children of Israel pursued the enemy, drove them, then Samuel took a stone, set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far, thus far, the Lord has helped us. 
So the Philistines were subdued. They did not come back anymore into the territory of Israel. Notice the last phrase. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Have you ever asked the question, why is the hand of God not against the enemies in America? We do need to pray. And by the way, I've heard many a person say, we need, we need to ask God to send the prophet. And I could say to you, don't do it. The prophet is always God's last line of defense before judgment. He uses many, many means to bring the people of God back to a relationship to God. His last line of defense is to send a prophet. If they won't listen to the prophet, it's over for the people of God. So you need to know ahead of time, if you're going to ask God for a prophet, you better be ready to repent. Because he'll be fearless. And he will come from the presence of God. And he will bring a word from God. And he will speak to the people of God. And in that moment, they will know what it is like to be in the presence of a holy God. And they will see their sin, and you need to be ready to guide the people of God out of their sin. Out of all of the things that I hear from pastors from time to time, especially when they read the, the material we put together called Fresh Encounter. Subtitle of that was Fresh Encounter, God's Pattern for Revival and Spiritual Awakening. When they come face to face with the holiness of God, and the standards of God, and the plumb lines of God. I've heard scores of pastors saying, I couldn't preach that in my church. Why, they'd run me out. I said, what in the world did God put you there for? We're far more concerned about the opinions of men than we are of the word of God. Listen, God's people don't stand a chance unless there's some pastors who believe God. And are not afraid of anything other than God. And they know him well enough to know that God means what he says. And he could say to the churches of America like he did to the church at Ephesus. You're, you're doing wonderful religious activities but I got something against you. You've left your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen and repent and return. Or else, it's over with you. I'll remove your candlestick. He'll do that to a denomination. He'll do it to a ministry. He'll do it to a church. He'll do it to a family. He'll do it to a pastor. He'll do it to anybody. And that's why this dear prophet cried out, Oh God, oh God, would you forgive their sin? And he cried out to the people, You need to return to God. And he said, bring them all together, let them all hear it together. And we need all together to repent corporately before God. It's not enough for three deacons to repent. The whole deacon body needs to. It's not enough for one of the staff to get right with God. The whole staff needs to get right with God. It's not enough for just a Sunday school teacher to get right with God. The whole church needs to. And when a whole church stands before God and cries out to God under the guidance of the word of God and the faithful sharing of the servant of God and they cry out under the conviction of the spirit of God 
We have sinned. Would you pray for us that God would forgive us, return us, and defeat the enemies that have come against us? I don't have time to describe to you how serious this pattern has been through my entire ministry. When I did not see the manifest presence of God at work in our church, I went before God and then came out of the presence of God before the people of God and said, we've sinned. That's why God is not manifesting himself to us. And when we repented of our sin, God began to do mighty works. I'd read the scripture that says, when I put it in the hearts of my people, to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the only provision of redemption for a whole world, and I put it in their heart to understand he's the son of the living God. When my father does that, I'm going to build my church on that, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, as a pastor, every three months, I'd go alone with God and ask the question, where are the gates of hell coming down around our church? Because if he built our church, we can see the evidence of the gates of hell coming down. And if the gates of hell are not coming down, either he didn't build that church, or we're a long ways away from him, and the first order of business is to return to him with all of our heart and to do it corporately. And we did. And as you remember, out of that time in Saskatoon, God did a work in my heart. And at that time, we had about 30 people in our, in our Sunday school. But in the I was there two years before and prayed with Bill McLeod. And then came through that wonderful time, and our church did. But I stayed 10 years after. And you know, out of that time, we started 38 new congregations. We saw over 100 feel called into the ministry. We started a whole theological college. We started work on the Indian Reserves, about 17 different Indian Reserves. And my own children felt the call of God to ministry. So all four of my boys felt called to pastor, and they're doing it. And my daughter is over in Germany as a career missionary. What happens when God comes face to face with a pastor? And the pastor happens to be me. I felt like Samuel. Oh God, if you don't hear my prayer, your people cannot survive. They cannot survive in their sin and be blessed. God, who is sufficient for such a thing as this? And Paul's answer was, God is our sufficiency. He makes me a sufficient minister of the new covenant. I knew that. And I said, oh God, what do I need to, what do I need to share from your word so that your people will return to you and love you in holiness and serve you alone with all their heart? And week after week, God would do a work in me where I had no right, no right to share with the people of God what was not incarnate in my own life. And it was a devastating time. And God still has me before the people of God to say. Return to God with all of your heart.
Don't say, I'm okay, when there's no evidence of the manifest presence of God in your life. No evidence of his power in your family or your marriage. No evidence of the presence of God in your church. Don't say everything's all right when everything is not all right. Would you be willing to take that incredible step to say, Lord, I'm going to quote a verse that is still running through my heart. When things were so bad in Israel, you can write it down and read it. 1 Samuel 2.35 I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do all that is in my heart and in my mind. I said, oh God, do I even know what's in your heart? Do I know what's in your mind? Or am I quoting cliches that run across the Christian community? But there's no authentic word that it has come directly from the heart of God. Folks, you'll know when your message has come from the heart of God. You will know it first. You will not be the same. You cannot bring a message from God and remain the same. So the change will take place in you. And then you'll watch the change take place in the people of God. But do it corporately. The call of God on America today is for corporate, corporate revival. I want to stop. And I want us to have prayer together. Would you, in your heart, respond to God? It's not a light matter. I believe we stand at a spiritual watershed. We stand at a spiritual crossroads. Either the people of God will recognize that what God has permitted is because of what he sees in the hearts of us. And that we will stay before him until he reveals to us what it is that he sees in our heart. And then cry out, oh God, would you correct that? I repent of that. I turn from that. Or I turn to what I have neglected. But, oh God, it is life and death. Do you have a passion that we stand on the edge of life and death? Or are you simply practicing religion? God, deliver us from that. I'm going to leave you in a moment of quiet and then I'll pray. You may have to process this on through the night, through tomorrow, through the next day, through the next few weeks. But let a holy unrest stay within your soul until God brings rest when you're right with him. Father, as a solitary servant of yours, with no merit in my own, I cry unto you for your dear people.
would you put new hearts within us and take out any stony heart? And would you cause us to walk in your ways once more? And in the process, would you deliver us, O oh God, from the enemy that seems to just surround us and besiege us? And Lord, may everybody know that when it is done, we'll raise a banner and call it Ebenezer. The Lord, one more time, has done it again. O oh Lord, May there be raised up all over America, Ebenezer's, because of the victories that you have wrought. Raise up for us faithful priests, faithful servants, who will do all that's in your heart and in your mind. And may the glory come to you alone. Take your glory, O oh Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.